day on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. A concern that we expressed on the program a couple of weeks ago, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger was here doing a town hall, and uh, we talked about the Stelco lands. And the city, of course, had a plan and thought they had an agreement with the province uh, about what was going to happen with those surplus lands down there. Uh, there was a bit of a change in plan that the city was kind of caught off guard by uh, when Stelco said, no, we're going to keep these things. Uh, so uh, the mayor, of course, as we mentioned, expressed some concern at that time. Well, earlier this week, uh, Mayor Eisenberger finally had a sit-down with uh, Alan Kostenbaum from Stelco. And uh, F- Mayor Fred Eisenberger joins us on the program to talk about uh, what they talked about and uh, maybe some results. Mr. Mayor, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you with us again today. Yeah, happy Friday to you, Bill. And to you. Let's let's talk a little bit about this concern, because I know that the city has some very legitimate concerns here. I mean, there was a plan that was laid out by the provincial government, the previous provincial government, uh, and that you dealt with surplus lands, and there was, a, I thought, a formula that was put in place, and you guys kind of got caught off guard by what happened next. We did, unfortunately, but, uh, you know, that's uh, that's history now, and that's going to water under the bridge. Uh, we had a great meeting with uh, Mr. Kestenbaum, who's now the kind of full full owner of uh, Stelco and, and the uh, the remaining lands, so the, the Lanco lands that were going to be managed and operated by the Lanco organization is now fully owned by them. And uh, I would say it was a very uh, positive meeting. Uh, you know, we've we've always had good respect for Mr. Kestenbaum and Bedrock for taking on the, uh, the Stelco site uh, in the steelmaking capacity. And uh, now they're taking on the balance of that property, including Nanticoke, in fact, uh, for future future development opportunities. So I would say the uh, the plans that we had put together are going to be very useful. Uh, we had some discussion about uh, the highest and best use and uh, ensuring that it maximizes the employment value. Of course, you know, as a as a, an entrepreneur business person, they're also looking to maximize monetary value, which is reasonable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you know, and we, we we've said all along that this is a uh, this is a gold mine of uh, opportunity for future immediate jobs that can be uh, delivered right here in Hamilton. Clean industries that can come here and employ uh, you know many many more people. So. I think we're on the same page. We certainly had that kind of conversation, and uh, I think it was a very positive outcome and result. They're still in the very beginning stages of mapping out their precise plans, but it certainly sounds like they're uh, completely open to some of the ideas that we've had and, uh, and, 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 and the highest and best use and, and making sure that we provide employment opportunities on these lands in a, in a very fulsome way. So I'm uh, at this point, uh, they're singing all the singing the right tune, and uh, we'll continue to work with them to see if we can, uh, you know, together work on making all of that happen. Did you get any clarification? It sounds as if uh, that you did talk about this, about about who actually may be on uh, the, these uh, tracts of land, Mr. Mayor, because uh, I know that the city's plan was to try to find somebody who might want to come in here and set up their shops here. Uh, when Stelco announced they wanted to keep those, there was some speculation. Out of that. What are they talking about here, expansion, or are they going to simply do the same thing? When you say you're on the same song sheet as them, does that necessarily mean that, that uh, Mr. Kestenbaum is also looking at uh, trying to bring in outside businesses to this uh, this property? Yeah, I think that's pretty clear. I think they uh, they understand and appreciate that they they don't need all of those lands for steel making, even if they open up the uh, the blast furnace, which is uh, still an open question. Uh, you know, their comment was, uh, you know, the, the market is uh, a little bit cha- challenged right now with tariffs and all the things that are flying around. But it certainly sounds like they have an intention to do that if the market is right. But having said that, they uh, they they won't need all of the available lands that are there for steel making, and so. Uh, they're going to be in the business of uh, offering up 
parcels of land for future industrial and uh, commercial development. And so uh, they're going to be the, ultimately the developer of the, the lands. We, we, we like to think that, uh, that our work in terms of defining what, uh, what good, and good, good uses are down there and some of the intel that we have in terms of folks that have expressed interest uh, is going to be shared with them, and we're going to work together to see if we can uh, bring some of those uses here to Hamilton. So I would say uh, it's good news that uh, they're looking to fill those spaces with employment-creating uh, uh, industry. And, uh, and the, uh, you know, the vision, I think, that we've had for the lands is, uh, is you know, certainly uh, in, in their ears and in their, uh, in their sight line in terms of a future vision for those lands as well. So I, I, I really feel that there's a lot of optimism here that we're heading towards the kind of opportunity that we were hoping that this land would be. To that point, and I'm glad you brought that up because I know that city staff, uh, when this plan was was hatched by uh, you in the province and and, and others, uh, Lanco, that uh, that you you guys had already started looking into potential uh, uh, you know, investors or or owners or whatever it was going to be at least ease into this whole thing. Uh, did you compare right. notes uh, on, on this? That, that have they done any of that work right now? Do you have some commonalities there? Yeah, I think uh, I mean the, the notes that we had are you know they're they're just getting started, and we've already had some you know many many months of uh, folks calling and saying you know we have some interest, so we're gonna we're gonna share resources so that uh, that we can you know provide that kind of long term benefit for those lands. Uh, there's no reason. I mean, our economic development department is all about bringing new new businesses and new employment opportunities to our city, and so we're not going to withhold those opportunities. And we've had a number of. Uh, Companies ask about, you know, what, uh, where could we go on these lands and uh, what could we do there? And so we're going to be sharing that information with Mr. Kestenbaum through our economic development department and uh, help them along towards uh, putting those lands into, uh, you know, employment use sooner rather than later. Are you, are, do, any estimate, have you done any, anything on the back of an envelope about what's, uh, what the tax implications are, the property tax implications, if in fact those lands do become populated and become viable businesses again? Well, I mean, the, uh, the, 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 the assessed value of those lands has been a factor, as you recall. Yes. The uh, M for whatever reason, uh, put it down to $50 an acre. Uh, clearly, the, uh, the purchase price that Mr. Kestenbaum uh, can acquire those lands at uh, is significantly higher than that. So that's good news. So, so there'll be a, there'll be a uh, kind of recovery on the, on the tax load side. And then any new businesses that come, any new industry that comes, uh, you know, business taxes apply. Uh, you know, the the development, uh, you know, uh, charges may apply if they need to uh, to re- reconfigure the lands that they have there and services. And then uh, they'll they'll all be, you know, rather than vacant land taxes, they'll be paying, you know, useful, uh, you know, business oriented uh, taxes that uh, come to the city of Hamilton. So, you know, our message to them was, uh, you know, our mission all along has been provide maximum employment opportunities so you know don't throw up a bunch of warehouses there that only employ one or two people or are, you know are robotic let's look for those ones that employ lots of people and for a hamilton it's a, it's an opportunity to uh, to restore the kind of tax base that used to be there that uh, that has been waned now because they're sitting on so much vacant land and so uh, i i think uh, I, I there's nothing but upside here if uh, if we all kind of work together i think we can we can create something here that's going to have long-term lasting enduring benefit the, the other good piece of news that i would say uh, you know they haven't made an ultimate decision on but it certainly sounded like to me that that they're not kind of quick Speculators, they're not looking to uh, to flip property. They're looking to uh, to to lease and hold, and uh, I think that is also particularly good news. 
I'm sure if somebody came along and said, uh, I'll offer you X, Y, Z for this chunk of property, they'll certainly consider that. But that wasn't, uh, that wasn't the context in which we had the discussion. It, w- it was more about them maximizing value over time uh, and not necessarily flipping this property, uh, you know, just to get in and out quickly. Well, and that's interesting because uh, by definition, I mean, Bedrock is, is, is one of those firms that, that simply likes to buy stuff and kind of improve everything they can and then try to flip it and make a profit from it. But it sounds as if uh, Mr. Kestenbaum has a, a much more vision. A little, He's looking a little further down the road than we might have thought. Yeah, I think so, and it's uh, it's not short term thinking. It's uh, it's no no. I'm, I'm, I imagine they could probably flip this property now if they if they wanted to. But I think they're uh, they're interested in maximizing value, and I don't, I don't think a flip would do that. And so they're uh, they're looking at uh, how do we how do we bring, you know, attract industries that can become uh, our tenants, and uh, and that tenancy can have long term uh, you know benefits to the company and long term benefits to the city. So I uh, I think that's uh, that's potentially that's a good model. Uh, and it uh, it does speak to their their interest in being here uh, not for a couple of years but for uh, for many decades to kind of see that through. What about the uh, remaining surplus lands? Uh, are you still a player in that? The city that is. Uh, there are some uh, some parcels that are available that we're interested in acquiring, and uh, but that's done through not through bedrock. It's done through the receivership process. So. Yeah. We are we're on top of that, and uh, we're we're looking to uh, to make sure that we get that into our portfolio, especially the the, the you know a piece of land that is at the uh, the western end of the uh, uh, Tiffany lands. That is a uh, you know a small remnant piece that uh, still was uh, Stelco owned and is now in the receivership portfolio. Uh, Bedrock didn't acquire it, and a couple of other parcels that that are intermixed in the. Uh, along Burlington Street that uh, we have interest in this separate and apart from what Bedrock is doing. So we're, uh, we're, we're keen on, you know, strategically capturing some of the properties that are going to be important for us for future development on those sites. Any idea what the time frame is to when they make it, may, either may make a decision on that? On, on those particular yeah, properties? Yeah, yeah. We, uh, we keep pushing the receiver to, uh, to let's get going because we're ready. And obviously we want to make sure that we, uh, we pay reasonable value and, some of the reasonable value has now been set by the purchase price that Mr. Kestenbaum has uh, has acquired the uh, the overall Landco property for. So I think we have some models to work from. So it's a matter of uh, getting them to the table and let's negotiate this and iron this out. Listen, uh, since you be, go we ahead, should be, we should be considered the uh, the preferential buyer on this one. I think. Uh, that uh, that would be, uh, I think, fair and reasonable, and we're going to approach it that way. Uh, if you're having a face-to-face as you did with uh, with Mr. Kestenbaum, I, I got to figure that big ugly word tariffs came into the conversation more than once. Obviously, it's the big black cloud that's hanging over uh, the steel industry here in Canada, and certainly to, in Hamilton to a certain extent too. Uh, how how did that discussion go? Because obviously, I know you're concerned about it from an economic development standpoint. I would assume he certainly is as well. Yeah, no question, and uh, you know it's interesting. That's uh, they're they're an American-based uh, company. Uh, you know, Mr. Kestenbaum is from New York City. They're uh, they're Americans, and they have uh, you know huge concern over what uh, what their president is doing uh, in terms of tariffs and trade wars. Uh, you know, right throughout the world. So they uh, they I think were initially very clear on wanting to uh, to restart the blast furnace. They're uh, they're more uncertain now because of the uh, the uns- uncertainty around the tariffs and. Uh, so it's got them to back up a little bit and, and do a you know, kind of a wait and see as to uh, you know how this is all going to play out and how this is going to impact the industry. Uh, so certainly, they're they're now a player in the in the steel industry, and uh, I, I'm no doubt they want to be careful on not tripping into uh, you know something that isn't uh, financially viable going forward. And if these tariffs stick, 
that's certainly going to put a bit of a damper on our Canadian steel industry and on pricing on steel-related products. And so uh, I, I would think that uh, it's a reasonable approach on their part to su- suggest that uh, they're going to kind of bide their time and see what happens you know, in the next months or year to uh, to see how these tariff issues play out. It's not a ne- it's not a positive story, and there's nothing in my view positive coming out of this tariff uh, tariff war. Uh, you know, we all think it's uh, it's a crazy you know initiative to that uh, really is hurting American allies not only in in Canada but in Europe and beyond, and it's going to hurt uh, Americans and American industry that is steel related that uh, you know suddenly now has a 25% premium attached to it uh, you know in the car industry and in the you know the appliance industry and etc cetera, etc cetera. so nothing positive is coming out of this and uh, it can only hurt consumer confidence and consumer pricing and uh, affect employment in on both sides of the border with large urban mayors, and you're a member of that organization, obviously, as mayor of the city of Hamilton right now, uh, meet or at least correspond on a regular basis with the federal government on this. Has there been any any back and forth on this as to what the government might do uh, in the way of protection, if nothing else, for cities like Hamilton? Yeah, I mean, they're, they've, they've made some assurances. I think uh, the minister of Freeland was in town uh, you know, a week ago and made some assurances that they're going to be uh, ready, willing, and able to support any job loss, uh, you know, impact as a result of that. We haven't yet seen that here in Canada. I think the good news is from the uh, from the industry that uh, 80% of their business is actually Canadian. That 20% goes across the border. So it's not uh, it's not a self-evident impact right now, but I think the government, uh, the federal government has done a great job of uh, having a balanced approach in terms of, uh, you know, I'm sad to say this word, but retaliation. Uh, I think they've been, uh, you know, we can't can't let this kind of just wash over us and accept it as the, the new normal. Uh, there has to be a response, and I think they've done a, a good job in balancing that out. And at the same time, uh, leaving the window open for you know the Americans, uh, quite frankly, and the and the American states that are more directly impacted by this, you know, 13 states that are are huge huge trading partners for Canada, on a balanced basis. Uh, are making some noise in the United States, and I think the hope and wish is that that noise uh, will get louder and uh, will certainly cause the uh, the government in the United States to rethink their position. Certainly hope so. Mr. Mayor, thanks as always for the time. Appreciate the update on this. Thank you, and have a great day. You too. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger, after his meeting with uh, Alex uh, Kestenbaum, who of course is uh, the head honcho with uh, the new Stelco down there, and that that's a legitimate concern about what was going to happen with that land. And I, I guess the city really thought they had the 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 front runner status on that, and we're kind of caught off guard when Stelco said, "No, we're going to keep this." And the province said, "Sure, yeah," or the uh, you know the folks that were involved in the in the bankruptcy. Uh, still, some parcels to land uh, that it could be available there for uh, future use for the city. So we'll keep an eye on that story and pass that on to you when we get it. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, we speculated yesterday, and then of course the, the budget speech was uh, laid out by the, the lieutenant governor. Uh, and uh, it's uh, well, some people call it a very aggressive uh, schedule and time frame that uh, the government laid out here. Uh, a lot of things like lowering electricity bills, cutting business and personal taxes, reducing gasoline prices, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, still not much in the way of uh, detail about how they plan to do this. So how would you rate the uh, the budget? How would you rate the plan that uh, the, the Doug Ford government has going forward? Joining us to talk about this is Christo Vellos. Uh, Christo, of course, is a Social Science and Humanities Research Council postdoctoral fellow at uh, the University of Toronto. Christo, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. What do you think about what you heard yesterday? I mean, uh, a lot of this stuff we heard through the course of the campaign, and, and I guess some of us were hoping to get a little more detail about how, but I didn't really hear a whole lot of that yesterday. 
Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think, you know, in general, you know, throne speeches are never really all about the details. It's really about, you know, here are our priorities for the coming, you know, term of government, for the coming legislature, and here's what we want to do. You know, sometimes you will find policy specifics. I think the reason people wanted them so much in this case is, as you know, there wasn't very many specifics during the campaign. So whereas, you know, the NDP, they, you know, the official opposition now had a kind of platform, you would say, okay, so they're saying this in their throne speech. We can therefore go cross-reference it to the platform and get a reasonable idea for how they're probably planning to do it. With Ford, and at least, you know, there are some policy pieces they had. In general, there wasn't that platform. So I think for some voters, some political analysts, some media folks, they're, they're still wondering, you know, not just the, the, not the what necessarily anymore, but the how. And I think that's, that's going to be a big question going forward. And maybe it's the case that with some of the issues, the government's still figuring these things out and is just trying to outline those priorities as they move towards some of them. Let's talk about one of those hows that we did get some details about yesterday, and that was how they were going to handle the sex ed curriculum. Uh, we knew that uh, they thought it was a very controversial issue. It came up during the leadership campaign, certainly came up during the election campaign. Uh, but I think a lot of people were caught off guard by their solution, which is basically to rip it up and, and, and you know, pull the, uh, the 1999 sex ed program out of the blue bin or wherever it's been for the last number of years and simply say, this is the standard until we, we come up with something else. That, that was a surprise. Yeah, I, I think so to a certain degree. I mean, that was one of the few things the conservatives did kind of run on. So, you know, in, in terms of, you know, them having a mandate to do something there, they certainly have that given their majority. And I think that's important to, a, a, you know, a good chunk of their base. Uh, you know, both their, their voter base, but probably volunteer and donor base as well. So it's not a surprise they're doing something. But you're right in noting that, you know, a kind of full scrapping is maybe more than some people would like to see. You know, there are also going to be issues here. I mean, the Civil Liberties Association might launch a legal challenge against this, saying that, you know, the, 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 the 1998 plan kind of systematically excludes GLBTQ uh, identities and people, and that that might violate it. So you might end up with a situation where, you know, simply going back to the 1998 plan might not be allowed if there's a legal challenge. It might force them to use the current sex ed platform or a curriculum, sorry, until they can re rejig it so that maybe it's more palatable to conservatives, yet it still has to meet certain baselines of inclusion. Because don't forget, this is a curriculum for the public education system, and as such. You know, you, you know the, the charter provisions do apply to it. So all of this could still happen. But I think you're right, in, in, again, in saying that um, going back to 1998 has not been uh, very popular. Now, of course, I don't know. Um, uh, I haven't had the chance to speak to too many people from the core conservative base to see if they're happy with this decision. But it definitely, I think, is an approach that's created early antagonism for the government, uh, you know, through... Uh, through the kind of people. And again, uh, something that, there was a great, uh, you know, headline in the Ottawa Citizen saying that, you know, Ford isn't just governing for the people who voted for him. He has to govern for everyone. And I think going back to the 1998 decision is something that's antagonizing kind of the broad, you know, non-conservative voter. Exactly the point. I have had the opportunity to talk to some uh, some of the more strident conservative supporters. As a matter of fact, a, a couple of folks that actually did some consulting for them uh, in, in the not-too-distant past. And both of them thought the uh, same thing as you just suggested, that this this was a mistake. Well, a misstep, if not a mistake. It's, it's hardly a mortal sin or anything, if I can go into that context. 
But but to simply rip it up, uh, maybe the more intelligent thing would to do is to say, look at. I know there's a lot of opposition to this, uh, so we're gonna we're gonna review it. We are going to do that public consultation that we promised, and then we'll make revisions to this and maybe take this out, put this in, whatever the case might be. But to simply say that's gone, throw it in the garbage right now. Is is really playing to the far extreme right of that party that, of that party support, and and I think it left a lot of other people scratching their heads, saying, well, "Wait a second, isn't that a little too extreme?" Well, yeah, I think you know one of the one of the narratives that came out during the leadership race, and one of the things we always noticed that in leadership races, this is true for liberals, conservatives, NDP, Greens, what have you, is that you run on different things and you run on different rhetorics and messaging when you're trying to win a nomination, when you're trying to win an election. And the problem with the conservatives this time is because of the whole Patrick Brown fiasco and all that, their leadership convention was, you know, weeks away from the general election. So there wasn't a whole lot of time to pivot. And the real concern was that, you know, Ford won in a very narrow margin. Um, you know, he didn't win the most votes. He didn't even win the most ridings, but he won the most points over Christine Elliott. And, and Tanya Granick-Allen's kind of staunchly social conservative base was essential in getting Ford the victory. The vast majority of her supporters went to Ford. So perhaps Ford feels indebted to the social conservatives in a sense. I know he did chuck, you know, Tanya Granick Allen down individually, but maybe he feels indebted to that base for whatever reason, and they might be getting something they approve of here. But, you know, one of the things I, I always thought was, is interesting here is that, you know, parents have been pulling their kids out of sex ed for, for decades now, and that includes when we were on the 1998 platform. So I think for the parents who would probably be most in opposition to any sex ed reform, they'll probably pull their kids out anyway. So in a sense, this is just taking away, um, you know, something of a modern sexual, sexual education curriculum away from the, the, the children who, whose parents want them to have it. What about rifts in the party? I mean, one of the people I talked to about this yesterday, who is a conservative and has been all of her life, says, you know, we're supposed to be the progressive conservative party. She says, I'm not so sure anymore. No, I mean, I, I, you know, I think that's, that's, that's one of the narratives that came up in the election. Yeah. You know, there was, you know, obviously it wasn't enough to change the result, but many conservatives, you know, uh, you know voted NDP. I, I, we had a lot of those kind of discussions. A lot of conservatives, maybe none in this particular election, voted liberal, but, but definitely were not, were not thrilled by the social conservative bent of of Ford, they don't like the kind of emergence within the party of the alt right. I, I think that's certainly the case. Um, it's it, it's going to raise questions. I think in terms of rifts in the party, the reality is that you know a couple months ago when Patrick Brown, you know, had the scandal, you know, anything could have happened. They could have blown this chance, and Ford, for all of his faults, um, won the election. So I think and in, 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 in won quite handily. So I think he will probably have some leeway within caucus, but you're certainly right in noting that there's going to be concerns, especially for for MPs and in, in ridings that were close NDP battlegrounds. That 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 you know a socially progressive NDP is going to be able to seize on these opportunities. So there's going to be some concern, I think, going forward from within caucus. Now, whether or not that leads to some changes, I mean, who knows? But but you're right. There's the, the the kind of socially progressive, fiscally conservative elements in the party, of which there are still some, um, might be concerned with this move. And and I understand. I mean, they're still basking in the uh, the afterglow of an election victory right now, so everybody's happy. And you know, hey, we're here and we're on this side of the legislature now, and that that means a lot to everybody, of course. 
But you got to wonder, in the, you know, in the passage of time, if some people are going to start having some doubts about that. But again, we'll see if some of that policy rolls up. Lots of other stuff that was talked about during the campaign that came up uh, during the the speech. Uh, and of course, uh, including lowering electricity bills, and and I, I guess as a uh, a tangent to that, we saw that uh, that uh, Mayo Schmidt finally got dumped. Uh, well, you know, there was an agreement that was reached, I suppose, but he still gets his ten million dollars. Uh, but there's still that promise to raise or to lower hydro rates, to lower business taxes, etc. A lot of the cliche stuff. Uh, so no real surprises on the speech, was there? No, not in that sense. I think you're right in noting that you know those were part of the general kind of trend. The, you know, Ford did say we're going to fire the six dollar, six million dollar man who was briefly a four hundred thousand dollar man, and then now is, as you note, a, a nine or eight or nine or ten million dollar man. Um, so you know, we did get that. We did get these these basic promises around gases and gas prices and, and taxes and hydro rates. Really, Ford's narrative during the campaign, at least in part, was uh, making Ontario more affordable for, for for the people, if you will, and that for the people was a kind of constant. Uh, you know, narrative hook in the speech. So I think that that's not a surprise. Now, whether or not any of these things work, of course, is is, is difficult to say. I mean, you know, Ford, you know, kind of in a traditional conservative vent, won't really, you know, put any constraints on private business to actually pass on the savings. So, you know, Hydro is a privatized company. There's not necessarily the, the desire from a company that is, you know, there at least in part to meet shareholders' desires to, actually lower rates, even if the government gives them inducements to do so. I think the only way you could do that is if you followed Andrea Horwath's plan to renationalize hydro. And I mean, in terms of gas prices, again, Ford can cut the gas tax. That might lower prices, but I think what's more likely is that companies will just fatten their profits a little bit. And I think that, you know, Ford's going to deal with some of the challenges because these are relatively easy decisions to make. He can write a thing saying, I'm going to cut the gas tax. He can lower taxes. But the consequences of these actions in terms of do they, one, create financial difficulties for our province? Because, you know, conservatives might not agree, but $1 in tax cuts is no different than $1 increases of spending in terms of its effect on our deficit. And the reality, again, is that, you know, if Ford does cut the gas tax, which lowers, you know, the, the public coffers, but still the gas prices don't go down, does he face a double whammy uh, in terms of, like, the effect there? And I think that's going to be the real test. Not... Can he make these decisions? He's got a substantial majority. And again, going back to any potential divisions in the caucus, one of the things Ford has is that many of these conservative electees are brand new MPs or brand new MPPs who will probably have a semblance of loyalty to the person that got them elected. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be an issue of when these changes happen, do they actually have the intended effect politically and, and, and technically? Christo, i got to wonder, with some of the promises, and maybe one of the reasons they were a little shy on details, well, a lot shy on details yesterday, uh, was because maybe some of the staff, the lawyers, and, and some of the, the ministry staff are saying to these newly minted ministers, whoa, just hold on here. Do you understand the ramifications of this? And, and, and the cancellation of the wind farm, uh, maybe it was a classic example of that. Uh, where the, the people that are building that, and they tell us it's almost completed, say, look, at the, yeah, this is going to cost the government about $100 million. And I don't admit that if that's in the contract or what, but and that's their estimate, but it's still a pretty significant number. And and one of the other basic promises that everybody thought was going to be a no-brainer uh, that he mentioned was uh, going to put beer in corner stores. Uh, I, I don't guess Mr. Ford was under the uh, uh, impression, but I mean, the reality here is that the, the provincial government has a, a locked-in contract with the beer store, which, by the way, as everybody knows, is a private entity, uh, that they have exclusivity on that until 2025. 
So he's either going to break that contract, and that's going to cost us something, or he's going to have to negotiate it down. Either way, it's not going to be as easy as he thought it was. No, I think you're right. I think there's a couple things here. Again, when, when and, and this would apply to even the most prepared of political parties, but, but especially a party that, that didn't really run with, with what you would call a platform, a party whose MPPs um, you know, skip debates and media appearances kind of systematically during the election. Um, you know, this is, this is something to be expected. And you're also right in noting that when you have a new minister, especially a minister uh, who's somebody who's be, who'd be a first-time minister or maybe is also, you know, a new politician, the reality is that, you know, they, re- they rely or, or probably should rely to a large degree on the, on the advice of, of ministerial staff because, you know, certainly those staff, you know, at the very highest level sometimes are political appointees, but at the mid-range level they're really just experts trying to do their job the best they can. And, and in a sense, you know, the realities of a lot of these contracts are going to, are going to play in, and, and for, it could put Ford in a tricky position because as the person who was elected pretty expressly to come in and overturn the Kathleen Wynne legacy, he has an incentive to kind of just undo what Wynne did and take things in a different direction. Although he was also elected, again, at least narratively, on this general idea to save the taxpayers' money. And it might not look good if, you know, he's paying $100 million just to, to cancel something that's already done, or if he's going to put beer in corner stores, which will, one, hurt the public coffers. It's not a fiscally conservative thing to do because the LCBO makes a lot of money for the Ontario taxpayer. Um, but the reality, again, is that if he breaks a contract there, you know, how is that going to affect him? Some people might be like, good, I want my beer in the corner stores. They want that. Of course, it could also be seen as anti-business. It could also be seen as an attack on the private industry of, 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 of the beer store. And it could be seen as something that's fiscally irresponsible to do um, uh, in terms of, you know, taxpayer money. So I don't know exactly how he'll approach that. But you're right in saying that these are things that probably should have been figured out before. There's, that's one of the trappings of taking over in government, though, isn't it, Christo? I mean, n- no matter who it is, uh, as an incoming prime minister or premier, invariably when you start going through files, you find out that the previous government has booby-trapped a lot of them uh, to, just to make sure that, they, you know, if they ever lose power, that you can't change that policy. Uh, Dalton McGinney found that out with the 407, that that was a locked-in contract, and, and so many other things have gone on like this that they thought they could do, and then in reality, you know, the lawyers say, uh-uh, you, you really can't. I know you want to, but you can't. Uh, it's it's got to be a frustrating exercise. No, certainly. I think I think some of these things probably could have been avoided with a little bit more planning, obviously. But but you're right in noting that you know it's always hard to know what happens. It's always hard to know you know the the systems in place. I mean, even going historically, when 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 Tommy Douglas and, and the CCF won in Saskatchewan, the outgoing Liberals shredded all the papers just kind of vindictively because they didn't want to to empower the government. Now, that probably doesn't happen in modern times, but you're right in noting that there are all these little things you don't really know about that, that require time, that require, uh, you know, more nuance than you campaigned on. And I think that's especially the case with the conservatives, because again, they campaigned on such generality. And on the few things they did campaign on specifically, they were very um, light on the details. So you didn't get, you know, buck a beer, 2025 when the contract runs out and we renegotiate it you didn't get lowering gas prices but you know really we can't just cut the taxes we have to find some mechanism of of keeping gas gas stations and gas companies accountable you got just buck a beer you got lower gas prices 
you know, and, and, and you got sex ed, you know, scrap the sex ed thing, but, but, you know, not, not replace it. So all of these kind of specifics weren't there. And now it's to a certain uh, extent coming home to roost with the government. And this is why they've, you know, they're a new government, but they're already disliked by the majority of the product. Well, and they're going to get some pushback from mayors right across Ontario when they lower the gas prices, because they, they, and that's one of the promises Ford reiterated yesterday. But that's going to lower gas revenue, which means that's less money going from the gas tax to the cities. Uh, and we already know now that they, the, the decision, for instance, that uh, Mr. Ford made about canceling the, uh, the cap-and-trade program uh, means that some money that Hamilton was counting on for electric buses isn't coming anymore. So that order's been canceled. Uh, I, I guess a lot more mayors are going to be upset by some of the ramifications of this. No, I think so. I think, you know, in, in a political system, you think a government has a majority that's certainly a, a Canadian government, whether it's provincial or federal, with a majority is a very powerful thing. Just that's the nature of our system. But the reality is that there are, in a sense, checks and balances. Again, I, I alluded to the fact that there might be legal challenges to the decision to go back to the 1998 uh, sex ed curriculum. Uh, and then politically, you know, there's obviously, I think, going to be a very strong NDP opposition that would keep this government to account in a way that the liberals wouldn't do, for instance, because the liberals and conservatives agree on, on so, so much. But the, the reality is that, you know, a big part of the opposition is going to come from mayors and, and city councillors uh, trying to uh, resist what will likely happen which is, you know, you try to mask some of your provincial cuts by downloading responsibilities and downloading the effects of those cuts to the municipalities. So therefore, that, that it puts the political pressure, as you note, on, on Hamilton and on, you know, Kingston and, and other cities to make these tough decisions, and that Ford doesn't always take the hit, but maybe he gets the credit for, for cutting the gas tax and then deals less with the consequences of of cities having to make these t- tricky decisions. And you're right in noting that if mayors and city councillors will have a kind of role to play in, in defending the interests of their of their of their of their their citizens of course, but about, you know, also these wider discussions about the role of government in, in terms of infrastructure spending and, and things of that sort. Interesting times for sure. Christo, always great to get your perspective. Thanks for the time today. Thanks for having me. Take care. Christo Avelos of course from the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As you know, uh, there has been a massive outcry since the Ontario government announced yesterday that they are tearing up the sex ed curriculum here in the province of Ontario that's been used for the last number of years and reverting back to a 1998 model for sex ed until they've done some consultation, until they talk to some people, until they devise another plan, which could take who knows how long. So there are obviously some ramifications to that. Joining us to talk about this is Jen Gilbert, who is an associate professor in the Faculty of Education at York University. Uh, Jen, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. So kind of a, just a logistical question before we get into some of the nuts and bolts of this. When, when a, a, whether it's a Board of Education or anybody else gets notice on this, uh, you know, halfway through July, that, oh, by the way, in September you're going to have to change the curriculum, that's got to be somewhat daunting to try to put something together. Yeah, I mean, it's not the whole curriculum, it's just that 10% yeah. that addresses sex ed, and um, most teachers tend to teach that towards the end of the school year, so they will have until, you know, until next spring to kind of figure that out. But it is, it, it's really, really disappointing. Were you surprised by the announcement? I was hurt, honestly, I feel a little, a little shocked, but not really surprised, but really, yeah, I feel like it's just a slap in the face of teachers and educators and those of us who think deeply about these issues in our daily lives. 
Well, as, as I was mentioning to our listeners just a little while ago, I had uh, the opportunity to talk to a couple of long-time uh, conservative uh, supporters. As a matter of fact, they actually have worked in the advisory capacity for the Ontario PC Party uh, in the past. They were both sh- surprised by this, and they both, frankly, said this was a mistake. Uh, that maybe the better tact would have been, look at, okay, you know, we'll we'll carry on with this, but we're going to do that consultation we told about, and then we'll make some changes. To simply rip this up and say we're not going to use any of it, they said it's pretty short-sighted. And I, I think there's a strong consensus for that right now. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, it, I think we, we shouldn't overestimate the relationship between the curriculum and what actually happens in classrooms. So even though this, you know, the PC government has said this curriculum is out, I don't think that necessarily means that those conversations that were part of the new curriculum won't take place in schools. I I think they still will because teachers are very, very supportive of the new curriculum. But it just sends a signal that, um, you know, that means that teachers don't feel as supported in having those conversations with students. Well, and and oftentimes, and, and now we're getting into the political realm, but we all have to live with the ramifications of the political realm. Uh, you tend to demonize something that you want to get rid of or destroy, and, and, and that certainly was happening with the sex ed curriculum. You know, the, there were assertions that there was no public uh, consultation. Well, certainly there was. They just didn't like the result of it, so they say there wasn't any, uh, and on and on it goes. And they, they said that it went too far, and it was teaching little kids about uh, things that per- were not age-appropriate, and anybody who read the curriculum would say just, I, I don't really think so. Uh, so on and on it goes, but a lot of people that just had a, a problem with it in the first place are going to buy into all of those arguments. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to remember that this really isn't about the curriculum. And I don't, I don't know what the curriculum will look like once it goes through this new reversion, revision, but I don't expect it to be hugely different than the current one. I think they picked the curriculum as this flashpoint where they can have this you know, debate that's really about homophobia, it's about transphobia, it's about sexism. They can have the debate, but in the end, the curriculum, as you know, is it's pretty conservative even in its current form. So it's not as though there's a lot of room to regress. Well, that's a concern, and I understand that at least a couple of groups that I've heard of uh, are considering, uh, you know, civil liberties actions against the right. government because of this, including LGBTQ communities, transgender, obviously, and, and people of this nature if, if, that are, are very much concerned right now that, uh, that they're, they're going to be non-persons. In other words, there'll be nothing about this. There'll be no discussion about this. Uh, one of the points I brought up yesterday is I said, you know, going back to 1998, uh, same-sex marriage was illegal then. Does that mean that that's going to be taught? You know, how do you how do you rationalize a program that that's old, considering how much we've moved and changed since then? Well, I do think that um, we shouldn't think that curriculum is ahead of the game. Like curriculum always comes late. So the question for me is: young people are already having these conversations. They already know about LGBTQ issues. They already know about sexting. They already know about debates about consent, and and do we want schools to be a place where young people have meaningful conversations about those topics? The PC government seems to say no, and that's what's most disheartening. Well, and therein lies the problem, because I know that one of the other explanations and and the arguments that that I've heard oftentimes when we've talked about this on our show is, look, this is the job for the parents. The parents know what's best for the kids. They should teach them all about sex. Uh, and, and I understand that there are some parents who may feel deeply about that and, and may actually be qualified and, and open-minded to do that. But I also know lots of other parents, and I'm, I'm sure you can cite some examples, 
who don't feel uh, very comfortable talking about this. Uh, some of them who who have very strident ideas about about sex and don't even want to use words like penis and vagina until the kids are twenty one years of age. Maybe not even <laughs> then. Uh, and and okay, is that really fair to the child? Because as you say, you know, not talking about it doesn't mean it's not on their minds and they're not thinking about it and not having questions about it. Right. And remember, young people, no matter who their parents are or what school they go to, they're always receiving many conflicting um, pieces of information and conversations about sex. Some more conservative, some more open, some from the Internet, some from pornography, some from the media. And and school is sort of one, and, and from parents, and school's one place where I think um, kids could come together to kind of sort through those conflicting messages. So it's really disappointing when to know that schools can't be that place. But it's not, but parents aren't the only voice on sexuality for young people. And um, parents who think that they are, are, I think, are really mistaken. Well, I've talked to some parents who have children who've gone through the program over the last number of years, and and, and almost to a, a person, they've all told me the same thing, is they'll get, what their, their kids will come home and actually begin conversations about it based on what they heard in school. So that starts the conversation going. And so it's not as if parents aren't allowed to have input. I mean, that's that's an unfair characterization. It's it's to give students a foundation for open discussion so they can have those discussions with their parents. Absolutely, absolutely. The best the best use of the curriculum is one that sparks a conversation that exceeds the school walls, that happens, you know, that it travels into the playground, into into people's homes, and that it just becomes something that we talk about in an ordinary way and not just during those few hours of the health lesson. And so to take away that, that catalyst that is the, the sex ed curriculum in the schools, I think, is it's really disappointing. You know, there was a rule of thumb uh, when my kids were younger, they, they, and I've, I've tried to follow it. Parents should never teach the kids how to drive because all you do is pass on your your bad driving habits to them. <laughs> uh, but it's, I think it's a very apt analogy uh, because the same thing happens. If you say the only education about sex my kids are going to get to be from the parents, you, you run the risk and, and maybe even the eventuality that you are going to pass on your biases, whatever they might be, whether it's against LGBTQ, uh, whether it's about same-sex marriage, whether it's about mar- you know sex before marriage, on and on. There's a whole long list of things that, that you're simply going to say, well, that's wrong. That's and no one wants to learn about sex from their parents. No one wants to think about their parents having sex. Exactly. So, I mean, I think that in a way the schools are, you know, offer a little more neutral space, a little more elbow room for kids to ask questions, you know, and hopefully they can ask those questions of their parents, but not always. And, um, and, and that's not always the parents' fault either, you know. So I think that Kids have to encounter these conversations in a range of contexts. Some have to happen at home for sure. Some should happen in school. Some should happen in um, religious communities, in community groups, and in the other places where we feel like we belong. But to take school out of that context is really... Uh, it, it risks doing some damage, I think. There's another element to this, and I know you're familiar, obviously, with the cards, uh, with the curriculum as it has been taught. And, and as I read through it again I, last night, uh, there's an awful lot in there that, that got tossed out with the bathwater here that I, I think was problematic. And, and that has to do with some of the, 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 the 21st century concerns about sexting and about online uh, websites and things of this nature uh, that were part of that. And I think a very important part of that now, too. How, how do you make that up? Does that get tossed out, too, or do you try to incorporate that in, into some other facet? I feel really confident that teachers are going to incorporate that into other lessons, into media literacy, into other parts of the day. I mean, I think that the mistake 
on for those of us who are upset about this decision is to imagine that this curriculum is the be-all and end-all of those conversations in schools. It's not. These conversations are happening in English class, in social studies, in media literacy, and all, you know, in the informal conversations that students and teachers have across the school day. But the curriculum did offer, like, a, a home for it. And so without a home, it, it becomes part of the, on the onus of the individual teacher to bring this up, and that's not fair. And I, but I do think that you know teachers are very aware of the um, importance of talking about online life, and that they'll find room in the school day for that. And 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 I, the, the teachers I've talked to, anyway, I, as far as I can recall, Jen, I mean they're the ones that actually encourage dialogue about this. Uh, it's 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 rare now to have the teacher that say this is the way it is. This is you know carved in stone. There'd be no discussion about this. Learn this, memorize it. I mean it was like that when I was a young kid. Uh, but as you get older, you start running into some great teachers that say, well, let's talk about this. If you have a contrary point of view, if you have questions, let's talk about this. And and most students, I think, will gravitate to that and take advantage of that sort of thing. It creates that dialogue and brings the parents and the school and the student together. Absolutely. we. I'm part of a team that just finished a big study of teachers in Ontario who are teaching the new sex ed. And all of the teachers we talked to, talk to almost say what this curriculum offers them in particular is a starting place for conversation with kids, that it says to them, these are conversations that we want you to have in school with young people. And they feel really enfranchised by that. And it, they, they say it makes their teaching more lively. It says, it, it says to them that, that um, kids can come to them with questions that are important to them. And I think that's the most important piece of sex education. I mean, because some of the stuff I've seen on social media that are very supportive of what's happened uh, and and very very critical of of the the curriculum and and I don't know whether or not they've read it, but they brought up some points that I didn't think were germane to the discussion. Is I don't want to go back to those days. I mean, I I was doing this job on talk radio back when the whole idea about sex education was introduced in the curriculums. That's years and years ago. And we heard things like, well, if you talk about it, you're going to encourage them to have sex. And if yeah. you talk about LGBTQ issues, you're going to turn them gay. And, and I mean, some ridiculous things like that. And I, I assume, I guess there's still some people who might feel that way, but I hope that's not where we're setting the bar now. I think the other thing in relationship to that is that let's not forget that young people are listening to this debate. They, you know, this is very educational. They're seeing adults and teachers and parents politicians argue over their sexuality and what they're supposed to know. We don't know what they're, what sense they're making of this argument. And my kind of optimistic hope is that they see this debate about sex ed as um, telling them that this is something that's really important and that they ought to take it seriously. So we may think that this is shutting down conversations, but it's also opening up some new conversations as well. You've you've just had that session with with a number of teachers right now. Do you feel confident that that those uh, those elements that we've talked about that talk about, for instance, twenty first century challenges and and questions that could be raised are, are still going to be covered off in this uh, this interim period? I think they will. Though I think it'll be a bit more uneven than if they had the endorsement that the curriculum offers. And so, yes, I trust teachers. I think teachers are working for the best interest of kids and they knew that they know that this curriculum is in the best interest of our young people and that they'll you know do their best to incorporate the elements that are there that are lost now into other parts of their uh, day. What about the consultation? I, I, I'm interested in one facet of this. Uh, are students going to be consulted on this too? Or is it just simply going to be parents and, and, and educators? No, I think that in the last round I, I, I the the stat that I read was that 700 students had been consulted. And yes, there's all sorts of mechanisms 
within the provincial government for consulting youth and incorporating youth voices into policy decisions, and they were consulted. Never have I met a piece of curriculum that has been worked over as much as this one. So the the lie that this is was kind of pushed and foisted on parents and on schools is just, I mean, it's ridiculous. Well, we hear that in debate all the time, and I'm sure you do too, Jen. I mean, somebody says that, uh, you know, nobody listened to what I had to say about this, and and, uh, the response oftentimes is, look, we heard you, we just don't agree with you. That doesn't mean we didn't hear you. Uh, You know, just because you're going to have your input and your five minutes in front of a committee doesn't necessarily mean we're going to change the policy to to try to accommodate you. I mean, there's there's always going to be people that are disenchanted, and as one person told me earlier today, people have been pulling people out of their kids out of sex ed class long before this curriculum even came into place. Yeah. Uh, and they'll continue to do it, I'm sure, if there's a revised one. It's, n- it's not as if we're going to set a new standard and everybody's going to be happy. That's, that's never going to be attainable. No, but study after study across North America shows that the vast majority of parents support the kind of sex education that the new curriculum offers. So this, the, the opposition is not, does not speak for the majority, but they are loud and politically powerful. And, you know, it's not that we shouldn't listen to those voices, but they don't speak for the majority of parents. Well, hopefully uh, saner heads will prevail as we move forward on this. Jen, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care. That's uh, Jen Gilbert, of course, Associate Professor in the Faculty of Education at York University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.